Welcome to Parenting in the Trenches. I'm Karen Peters, a registered clinical counselor, and I'm a mom. We're getting real about all things family from a mental health perspective. So let's get to it. Okay, so today's episode of Parenting in the Trenches is a bit of a bonus episode because we are piggybacking and going more in depth on a topic we visited last year in our Neurodiverse Families series when we were exploring the impacts of trauma on our kids' brains and how our kids' brains shape and develop over time. And because there was so much to cover, it was a little bit high level and we kind of stayed there. Uh, It also preceded the publication of Dr. Getty's book, um, which is called Children and Complex Trauma, a Roadmap for Healing and Recovery, which has now since been released. So we thought it was really important to come back to this topic and maybe choose something that we could really uh, chew on, you know, something that had more depth to it that helped us understand some of the context context and concepts that are helpful for helping our kids heal when they've had really trying circumstances and they've felt unsafe for a period of time. So this, this conversation is really going to be helpful for people who support kids who have had those experiences in their past um, and who want to be part of their healing journey. So uh, Dr. Chuck Geddes has worked extensively in the fields of child and youth mental health and child welfare for over 15 years, serving in various clinical roles, including supervision of staff and interns. He completed his PhD at Colorado State University and has his MA from California State University in Fullerton. Dr. Geddes became interested in the role of complex trauma in children's neurological development through the work of the Child Trauma Academy, Dan Siegel and others. He developed the Complex Care and Intervention Program, which we like to call CCI, because that's a bit of a mouthful, right? Um, As a way to embed a trauma-focused therapeutic perspective into the care of children in the foster care system. Dr. Geddes provides education and training to social workers, foster parents, and mental health clinicians all across the province of BC and Canada, helping Adoptive parents who adopt children from traumatic backgrounds is another area of growing interest. And Chuck and his wife, on a more personal note, have three adult sons, one of whom has special needs. And in his spare time, Chuck will often be found hiking, biking, and my favorite, playing old-timer hockey. Gives it away. For people who aren't visually seeing you, you can't get away sounding young. (laughs) Is that the deal? (laughs) It's so good to have you back. Thanks for being here again. Thank you very much, Karen. I'm glad that we're going to get a chance to dig in a little bit deeper on some of these ideas. Yeah. Today, we wanted to really hone in on the stress staircase. It's one of those nice concepts, actually, that we can put on paper. So in my, I've got two offices that I'm working out of, and in my play therapy, family therapy office, we have multiple copies of this pinned up on our wall. And we refer to this because it's so kid-friendly and it's so adult-friendly and it's therapy-friendly. So I refer to it often. And so this feels fun to me because we get to really dissect it, take it apart, and understand it better. So maybe can you give uh, an overview of what the stress staircase is? Is it something we all have? Is it only certain people who have it? Um, And what does it look like specifically for people who have experienced trauma? 
Sure. Well, I think I really like the idea of the stress staircase because we've tried to uh, you know, take some complicated ideas and make them as simple as possible visually. Yeah. And, you know, we all have um, the experience of having different degrees of stress in our life any given day. Mm-hmm. And so we find ourselves maybe, um, you know, sort of move increasing in stress, we would say moving up the stress staircase. And one of the things that we're trying to communicate is that as that happens, there are physiological differences, there are neurological differences that start to happen within our body. So as I get more mm-hmm. stressed, I'm, um, I tend to be become more kind of uh, vigilant and worried and um, seeing threats, different places. I might not even think of them as being a threat, but I tend to kind of be responding um, more and more from my lower brain rather than my kind of higher or upstairs brain, my thinking brain. And so that the, as I'm more stressed, we all know this, as you're more stressed, you tend to be racked quicker, uh, perhaps get angry, um, things come out of your mouth that you didn't expect to say. And so yeah. those are kind of common experiences that we have, that we all have. And I think that we also, um, we if we know ourselves a little bit, we understand there are certain things we can do that help us come back down the stress staircase. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and I think probably going through the day, we probably, most of us would wake up, you know, what we would say kind of in the green zone. You're kind of waking up and you're a little bit mellow and then you start thinking about the day coming up and, and that the, the thoughts of that increase our arousal level or our, stress level that we're experiencing so i think that's something that we all experience and that's a um, a nice way to think about what we as the adults are experiencing and then what the children we're caring for are experiencing as well you know when you were talking about that i was thinking about when trauma actually um feels so unsafe in our bodies that we separate from it so when you were saying you know we have these reactions that we're not thinking through we just do them it's it's, it reminds me of that lack of insight that we have in those times, because that's not the part of the brain that's operating. It's not the insightful brain that understands what's happening or making choices. It's just operating out of survival. Right. And so some of these confusing things we see in our kids, sometimes we we're baffled. We're like, how do you not know that's not okay? Right? Like, why are you choosing to hit? Why are you that this is not going to serve you? How do you not understand? Right? In the moment, it feels illogical, irrational. And, and kind of obvious. Um, but isn't that true that like there's no access to the part that can temper or make help us make really good decisions? It's not that our kids don't know that it's not okay to hit, right? Uh, yeah, there's a number of different uh, things you're bringing up here that are interesting. So, you know, one of the things is we all are aware of this survival brain that we have that is where our, um, when we're under threat, that there are these kind of primitive mechanisms in our brain that will try and take us to a place of safety. So they start to physiological, uh, change our physiological system, uh, mm-hmm. gets us ready to move to this fight or flighter, or even a freeze kind of playing dead kind of place. Yeah. And, and so we are aware of these um, kind of survival things that could take over if we're under a high degree of threat. Um, what we tend to think is that all of us, including the kids we care for, are going through the day, not with the survival brain active, but rather with the kind of logical part of the brain. And so then as a parent, we can look at a child or a teacher, look at a child and think, why are they doing that? That doesn't make sense. Like you said, it's, and why aren't they able to see and understand that that's, um, you know, not an okay behavior, that this isn't serving them well, that this um, actually will end up with problems down the road. But as you said, that's not, as we get increasingly stressed, it's actually that survival part of the brain that's kicking in. And I think 
you know, for children who've experienced complex trauma, so multiple types of traumas in their life, particularly in the first five or six years of life, one of the things that happens is that the brain's uh, survival mechanisms get set on high alert. So they're much more, um, their brain is kind of patterned, learn the pattern or the habit of, I need to scan the environment. I need to see what might be coming at me. And, and it very quickly kind of um, uh, sort of takes over. So that survival mechanism, actually with many of our children that we care for and help to care for, I think that that survival brain is actually the thing that's kind of driving them through the day for the most part. Yeah. The logical part of the brain's there, but often it's kind of pushed to the background. There are times of day that I often hear parents say or feel the worst, the hardest, the most challenging. And that came up for me as you were talking. I was thinking uh, back to a conversation actually I had last year with um, Kim Bartell. And she was talking about sensory overload and how, you know, if you, if you pretend you're kind of hitting a, a bit of a restart button on your own system every night when you're sleeping, you wake up in the morning with a bit of a fresh bank, right? And then this accumulation of we're trying so hard and working so hard to tolerate our environment, but that builds and grows and accumulates in us to the point where we hit all of a sudden this threshold where we can't cope. We can't cope with the input anymore. And, and when you're talking about that, I, I, that's what I picture. I picture this like overflow state where we can see kids, this happens when they come home from school. They've tried so hard all day to hold it together. Um, or bedtime, right? They're just fried at bedtime. Everything's hard at bedtime. And mm -hmm. it's hard for us at bedtime because we have also <laughs> tried to track and been there for and stayed calm and been the supportive one and that, and we have our own capacity, right? And so we hit those points. But I, I think about, about how that overload takes a toll on our own system. Even when we're not in traumatic circumstances, we are kind of re-experiencing that to some, our, you know, just on paper, our nervous system is in overload, trying to cope with not being in overload. Yes, very much. And if we're not careful about that, I think our, you know, our stress response or if our child's feeling stressed, then their behavior is getting a little more difficult and they're maybe not reacting in that kind of logical kind of way. And we go up that stressor case right along with them at times. Yeah, we do. So now yeah. we've got, you know, parent and child both mm -hmm. trying to uh, get through this when we're both in that kind of reactive part of our brain. So I like one of the things that you brought up, Karen, is that idea of that uh, almost like a reset. And so one thing that we found to be really helpful is that idea that it's a parent's job. It's going to help your child if throughout the day, we can keep having these resets. Mm. So otherwise, if you think, think about this uh, idea of the staircase, as the child's going through the day, they're into, um, they're adding uh, sort of a burden on their sensory yeah. system, right? So that's that's both the sensory kind of overload. So getting to school, it's noisy, it's busy, but it's also the threat piece yep. of that. Schools yeah. are, I think, a highly stressful environment. You're worried yes. about, you know, how do my, what do my peers think of me? Am I being included? Am I being excluded? Is someone laughing at me? Do it's I feel constant, smart? Constant. And so yeah. I think, you know, that does take a huge toll on our kids. And so if we're able to sort of think in terms of um, how do we help them to get this reset hmm. over and over and over through the days, we're going to be more successful. They'll be more successful because we've helped them to take a couple steps down the stress staircase. And, and when we, again, if we think about kids who've come from traumatic backgrounds, 
when we end up talking with uh, caregivers and, and staff that are in a school or other people that know the child well, they're often describing a child that's almost vibrating. So the child's just under, whether we want to call that stress or we want to call that anxiety or whatever we want to call that, they're yeah. kind of vibrating a that lot of the energy. time. So they're on edge, they're um, tense, they're expecting bad things to happen. There's a whole big mode there. And so yeah. that child is, is right on the edge often of that being flooded. It's too much. I can't manage this, whether it's relationships, sensory overload, um, emotions. It's too much for me. And my brain will take me to that place of fight or flight or freeze. And so in order, and that happens very quickly. And we, you hear, I'm sure all the time of, of people saying, oh, that child just goes from zero to 60. Exactly. It, you know, That's up. right. Yeah. And so actually, fast. Yes. And, but, but instead we really should be thinking about, you know, this child's running at 45 all the time. All That's day. their baseline. Yeah. And so it doesn't take very much extra to push them to that point when they're at 60 and now they're mm. you know, kind of in the red zone and you get the fight and flight kind of responses. But if we can help to reset that a little bit lower, then I think mm. we could talk about some strategies to do that. Mm -hmm. But if we can reset that a little bit lower, they'll have a little more time to, to think first, to um, seek support first, to using a calming, um, calming technique before yeah. they're into that kind of red zone and blasting. Yeah. Can, before we get to the strategies, can you help us understand um, how, how personalized the stress staircase is? Like, so I'm, I'm thinking from a practical perspective, my kid's stress staircase has different signals attached. So I would label each step maybe differently than another parent who sees their kid going into overload. The, the, we have unique things that we how the way we take in the world right um so depending on what i've experienced but also depending on what's happening in the moment and how that affects me what i consider perceived stressful hard on my system is going to map out my stress case differently than it will be the next person's how do you go about mapping that is there a process that parents can can use a to go through to decide what that looks like for their kids uh, that's really interesting. I, I like that idea of, um, I guess it makes us be kind of a detective, doesn't it? In a sense, yeah. it's that, that we need to be curious and not assume that um, a particular situation is not stressful for them or that the things that are bothering them in that situation are the mm -hmm. same as what would be bothering us. So yeah. I, I, we've used that idea of kind of being a detective around what helps your particular child because there's different things you can do we want to be kind of that curious detective to sort out what's helpful to your child but i really like that idea of kind of putting that on the other end too like okay how do i know and recognize mm -hmm. that my child is moving up that stress staircase what's it look like is that you know their face goes beat red is that yeah. the opposite where they seem to go quiet and go internal like what are the signals because uh, that's going to be different for each child and then mm -hmm what is it about that situation that's causing the stress? It, you know, one of the things that um, you mentioned earlier is the, that idea of sensory overload at, yeah. after a conversation with Kim Bartel. And when we've got children who had uh, really difficult experiences during pregnancy or yeah. in the first few months of life, so this can include a parent who is um, a mother who was under stress during pregnancy, maybe was couch surfing, maybe was um, abusing substances, maybe was 
uh, there was domestic violence, malnutrition, all those kinds of things that would have interrupted the child's development yeah. during pregnancy or in those first few months after pregnancy. I think often what happens is the child's nervous system in terms of um, receiving the input, the sensory inputs from the world, hasn't developed well. And so um, often I think those children are running through, the, through life or moving through life with struggling to kind of cope with all the sensory inputs. And so we don't even think about that often no. with kids. We just right. assume they're doing okay. Yeah. But whenever I see um, a child's history and I see these prenatal problems, yeah. and early, early first few months out of the womb problems, I wonder how they're managing, managing sensory things. And if we don't ask, we often don't hear that. But when we do start to ask, wow, we're hearing all kinds of, it's sort of this background noise that the child's coping with through the day of trying to manage what that sound and that light and this commotion and yeah. this touch. And sometimes that's kind of running, you know, a little below the surface, but it leads to these, the dysregulation that we see. Hmm. It feels so much more empowering to me as a parent when I, when it feels concrete. Like, so if I, if I know what my child's cues are, because like what you said a few minutes ago, like these are kids who go from zero to a hundred. We don't have a ton of time. <laughs> right. So if we're going to go early intervene, right, we want to get catch it as quick as possible to kind of reset or come down a couple steps on the staircase. We don't want to wait until they're in this high red zone where they're past the point of being able to connect with us. So we we know that it's better for everybody involved if we can detect it earlier. But that's tricky. So I know that in in, you know, in correlation with that, that if. If I do know, I feel that much more capable of helping and intervening and doing the right thing in the right time, right? Um, but without that map, I feel like it. There, there's so many versions of what stress can look like in a person that it, it, it really does need to, some attention, I think, on our part to customize that for our kids so that we are doing it for our, that's attuned to our child. It's not just you know, a generic map that a book has provided, right? I think I come at this a, just a little bit different perspective, but I'm, I think mm -hmm. about the children that get referred to us, they're yeah. really struggling, right? At the time yes. when they're referred to our program. But, yeah. um, and everybody around them is struggling. But my assumption is that for most of those children, they are high up on that stress staircase most of the time. Right. And so rather than sort of playing this um, uh, kind of a game, where we're, we're trying, I shouldn't call it a game, uh, rather than trying to, um, to, to sense that my child's more stressed, I just assume they're all stressed. So okay. we sort of take the, take the approach of, instead of let's um, watching for that eyebrow to raise or the face to get a little bit flushed and then think I need to do something, let's mm -hmm. just assume that they're all carrying more stress than they can manage. And anything we can do that's gonna quiet down their stress response system, quiet and move them down that stress staircase, that's going to help with emotion regulation. That's going to yeah. help with academic success. That's going to help with their ability to connect with you. Because yeah. as you said, once they're in the red zone, you know, yeah. that's are off. Yeah. Uh, so we really think about how do we just prevent on a preventive kind of basis, mm -hmm. go there first and, okay. and to sort of help that child's uh, baseline to be yeah. a little bit lower. Right. Yeah. So, so you're, yeah. you're talking, you're talking the platform piece. Yeah, I'm thinking more in in heightened moments, or how do we detect in a day that stair what that staircase looks like for a kid? But mm -hmm. you're saying 
we also have to assume that they start with a platform halfway up that staircase. And that's actually really critical. You're saying that's what's really important, that we we put our pour our resources into helping the the basement level that's currently half up the staircase. We want to lower it. Yes. Did I get that right? Okay. Absolutely. Okay. So talk to me about uh, strategies then. What what have you come across that feels effective in moving the that platform to a more basement position? Okay. Um, let me add one thing just as, sure. as I go to do that. So, and that's the idea that, um, you know, when we see children, the, the more dysregulated the child is, the more they're struggling to manage their emotions and their behavior, the more we feel like we need to do this. So we're going to be doing it in every, every situation, every case, we're going to be working on these things, but it's almost like um, the more dysregulated the child's getting, then over time, then the more we need to do these things. And so, you know, we might, with a typical parent, we might say, okay, let's see if we can hit that reset button, you know, three or four times during the day. Let's see if we can hit it at those witching hour moments, the just after school moments, the getting ready for dinner moments, the, the pre-bedtime moments. Let's see if we can step in with those. But with children who are really, really struggling, I'm talking more like, let's do this every 30 minutes. Yeah. And, which which obviously becomes a, you know, a challenge to do it that often as a parent. But just think about yeah. what can we do to just quiet this, child's stress response system down, connect with them, help them to feel safe and to, and um, yeah, to just be doing that over and over again before they're getting up to that place. So um, when I think about that stress staircase, I, I sort of come at this in three different ways. So I think about how can we come at, from three different directions in a sense. So one is, can the outside in, what's going on in the child's life day after day throughout the day? that we could, where we could decrease some uh, stressors. And I'll talk about some of those, but kind of an outside in approach. And then, then we think about bottom up strategies. So okay. how do we uh, go down into the bottom part of the brain and quiet that part down? And then uh, the other, I'd say sort of top down, some things that you can teach your child. So um, use their thinking to help them to manage. Hmm. So if we think about that um, at first, that kind of outside in, what can we, we'll look at the child's life so their week, their day, is there anything there? Well, what, how many situations are there that the child's struggling with? So are there situations where they are, um, well, I'd, I'd always have the question, are they overscheduled? Are there, um, is there enough, on the positive side, is there enough kind of structure and routine and predictability? Because those are all things that are gonna help us to stay calm. Mm -hmm. But is there kind of too much expected of the child? So you mentioned yeah. school. Oftentimes yeah. our kids are trying to keep it together in a very difficult environment at school and then come home. But now we've got sports or we've got some, uh, maybe it's doctor visits or therapy visits or other things because you've got a trouble that struggles. So, we, so let's look at their week. Is there too much going on there? And what we found over and over is when we can take away those things which are stressors, the child will do better. So we, we've become, um, we're pretty vigilant about this in our cases to really think about what can we take away here that's mm. adding to that sense of being overloaded for the child? How can we um, take those things out? So some things that we often come across because we're working with kids that are in, often in foster care or they're in um, uh, maybe an adoptive situation where there's open adoption, but it's um, you know, things like visits with bio family. Mm -hmm. So that's something that we all value. We'd like to see kids stay connected with their, their families, but that's a very stressful kind of thing. 
Mm-hmm. And one thing we've learned about kids who have um, lived with complex trauma in their life is that they don't reset down that stress staircase very yeah. easily. So they're not only running through the day high up there and on the upper ends of the stress staircase, but when they're stressed, they don't come back down very quickly. So I'm sure you all are aware of your audience and aware of situations where there's some sort of uh, family visit that's happening partway through the week that is um, the child's stress leading into it. And it, it might be a good visit. It might go okay, but there's stress leading yeah. into it. There's a lot of stress and emotion. Preparation. Happens. Yeah. 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 And so it might be, you know, often your foster parents saying, you know, gosh, it's like three days out of our week just that's to right. manage this one kind of evening visit. It's three days out of our week because there's um, the preparation day and then the day of and then the day after. And those days are such a challenge. And when I think about kids who are, it's just a a huge amount of stress to put in a child's life at that point. So we always think about how can we manage that better? Mm -hmm. So it might be thinking about, you know, uh, decreasing how frequently those visits happen Mm -hmm. to help keep the visits as successful and um, attachment affirming as possible. So think about visits that are kind of short and sweet and Mm -hmm. and structured and effective for both the parent and the bio parent and the child. Yeah. Um, but that would be an example of something we look at. So we so looking at looking at the child's life, are do they have too many events that they're having to cope with through the week? So there's not enough kind of downtime and quiet time and opportunities to reset. And opportunities to really be with the main you know, the main caregivers, their parents that are gonna be the ones that that are kind of um, provide the security that they need. So I think of one case now where the girls in you know, full-time school, and then she goes to after-school care for two or three hours, and then she's got appointments on top of that, and then she's got some sports on top of that, and then was going to a therapy program on a Saturday uh, Mm. to learn some social skills. And all that accumulation, each of those situations is hard for her, so that accumulation meant that she didn't get enough of the attachment time she needed and was never had time to kind of recoup and and, uh, quiet down, right? So that's the kind yeah. of you know, outside. You're thinking of, about like rhythms on. of life, right? And and the the pace at which that rhythm needs to travel in in a kid's life who has significant hardship that that has created a hyperactive ner- nervous system needs more often less stimulus, right? Yeah. So, exactly. yeah okay. More exactly. opportunity and slower amounts of time. I see that too. Where it's like, well, we took we have every Wednesday off. <laughs> I also see kids who can't adapt well, right? I, I hear like there's another word for this staircase would be adjustment. How do I move fluidly through up and down something based on how I'm experiencing the world, right? And if I don't have internally the ability to adapt or adjust from moment to moment, then I need to stay longer in each moment, right? To be able to yes. get that. So just having a day off a week, but then cramming everything on on weekends also doesn't work. <laughs> right? No, because they keep all together and you add it all up. Right. We, you know, we found much. over and over again, very challenging children and situations that are referred to us. If we do two things well, we're going to see progress. Okay. One is if we can just, we're fighting against stress. So how can we decrease the amount of stress that yeah. the child's experiencing. And the second is how can we deepen the attachment? Yeah. If we do those two things, we call those our, our therapeutic bookends. 
if we do those two things, we're going to see the child grow and develop, and we're going to see you know uh, less of the kind of meltdowns and and emotional challenges. We're going to see better behavior. We're going to have lots of different things uh, out of yeah. those two roots. Yeah. So I mentioned the uh, kind of outside in. So then let's talk a, a little bit yeah. about um, kind of uh, sort of bottom up. Okay. So uh, so this sort of follows the ideas that um, from Dr. Bruce Perry that um, children need, you know, if we can introduce pattern, repetitive, rhythmic stimulation, mm-hmm. that that's calming and organizing for the child and it's mm-hmm. organizing for the brain. So we're looking at ways to uh, kind of have this, um, uh, to use sensory, positive, pleasurable sensory activities. Yeah. So whether that's touch, whether it's sound, whether it's movement, whether mm-hmm. it's smell to help the child kind of come down into the quiet place. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, one foster parent taught me this, actually. She talked about how uh, her little boy, I think he was about eight at the time, would get, you know, quite wound up and was, you know, couldn't slow down and seemed to be almost hyperventilating. And she'd throw a big towel in the dryer and just warm it up. And then she'd take that towel and she'd wrap it around him really tight and give him a big hug. And she said, I could just feel the tension going out of his body. Drop, yep tension drop and that's exactly what we're looking for that i that almost that mm. big exhale mm-hmm. oh, that deep pressure gives that, that release yes so the yeah. warmth the deep pressure now another yeah. child might not like that but it that's might right something else. Yeah. we've got kids where um you know our our entree to them might be um taking some lotion and rubbing it on their hands mm. and that we're doing that uh not just because we want to have lotion on their hands they don't have dry hands but because this is a tactile soothing. experience it's mm. soothing and so we'll we'll tell parents all right the one minute that you normally take to do that could you take five minutes could you stretch that out and oftentimes the parents sort of caregivers face to face with the child during that time which is really special mm. in addition to the touch right but it's the idea of how can we use sensory experiences to quiet the child down and this is where that detective idea comes in yeah. what does your child like in response to what can you do where you can just feel that ah coming out of them right and yeah there's some we also use some uh, with kids that are quite um you know where movement's really helpful Mm -hmm. i have a sequence that i heard about in a school that i really like to move work breathe i got a number of homes where we do this move we're gonna so within a five minute period of time we're gonna move we're gonna do some work and and then we're gonna breathe and i'll describe Mm -hmm. that so at every transition point you mentioned earlier kind of these transitions and how kids have struggled with that. So at every transition point between one activity and another with um, with certain children, we're going to do this move, work, breathe. So move might be um, to do jumping jacks for 30 seconds. Yeah. High energy, high energy, high energy. Run in place, run in place, do, do jumps. Ah, then we stop and we shake it all out and then we do work, which might be a tension release kinds of things so these are easy to do you could uh you're if you're at home you could go over to the wall and you're doing this with your with the child you're caring for go to the wall and push the wall everybody push 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 yeah and we push for 15 seconds and oh and then we stop and we shake out our hands and we take a deep breath and then and then breathe move work breathe we want to take some deep breaths deep slow breaths and then go back and do it again so move work breathe it's kind of high intensity and then yep. that shake it out, yep. like the wiggles out, take that deep breath. And oftentimes that sequence is quieting to the body and quiet along with that, and kind of quieting to the child's nervous system. 
We've moved and adapted through some of our strategies at home, but I, that actually reminds me of like, I, when you're in this community, we have, we know other parents who are doing this, right? And so we chat back and forth because we get each other. So, you know, sometimes I, I remember years ago, a friend uh, who has several foster kids and has adopted a few children as well. And she lives in Alberta and she, um, out of the blue, had texted me a picture of her child trying to pick up a fridge like a three-year-old, right? And she's like, we're at it again. It's one of those days. And and I remember thinking, I know exactly, that would make no sense to anybody, but those of us who are in it, because I knew exactly, this was not just a random, she set this up as a strategy. Hey, could you go get me the fridge? Because that lifting, that pressure, that thing that of resistance actually released whatever was going on for that child. Yes. We So similar to the doorframe, right? That was a common one for us is like, go sit in the door frame. She was just the right height. Her legs were just the right length. Push on that. Push your back against this. Push, push, push. Yeah, push, push, push. And can you do it longer? Can you do it harder? Can you do it, right? Let's set a timer and see how long you can do it. It was like this challenge and engage them in a different way. And yeah, I remember how, how unique those things felt because this is not a parenting strategy everybody uses, but you know, we, we knew each other's language. We spoke that language, but and now yeah. we've moved into that. So that was old school for us. That, but now we're into dance and drumming because our, for our kid, it's anything that feels rejecting or constricting. So she walks through her whole day worried that she's not going to be accepted. That containment of behave, behave, behave in order to be like, that is a hard continuum, right? And mm -hmm. we don't want that defining but she comes home having felt that pressure all day. And then she wants to release and just be free. And often that comes out in behaviors that harm other people's sense of freedom. And so channeling that becomes, how do you move freely? So she'll put on some kind of dance program and she'll just let loose. And nobody criticizes <laughs> that. Nobody gets in her space. It's like, give her the living room. Let her be as loud as she needs to be. And an hour later, she's calm and regulated and responsive. Right? So it's like... Yes. Those are the new things, but I get that. Um, yeah, I think what, one of the things that I want to talk about is the um, kind of the difference between, let's call it uh, high energy movement slash recreation and the place of that compared to these kind of uh, calming strategies, which would okay. may have that, um, like that uh, repetitive, rhythmic um, sensory input, like that pattern mm -hmm. repetitive rhythmic piece. So I think um, a lot, lots of times we've got kids with high energy. And so parents or caregivers are saying, I found I just need to run them, right? And if I just kind of get them, I'm trying to burn off the energy. Mm -hmm. and, and there's certainly a, um, some kids are going to respond really well to that. So it sounds like your daughter responds really well to that, just kind of freely being able to kind of let loose physically. And, and probably at the end of that, she's got these endorphins, positive yeah. endorphins that are helping her mood. And she's got that, that, um, released stress through that activity what we um off, i think one of the things that we see is that we've got this idea that if i just keep them busy and kind of recreation yeah, that's different that that's coming and that's a little bit different i think yeah. that we're trying to find things that that have that um uh that reset quality that and that pattern repetitive rhythmic stimulation yes. so for instance having a child uh sending them outside to play basketball um, you think, okay, well, that's got some rhythmic pieces to it because they're bounce, bounce, bounce mm -hmm. the ball. But most, if you watch kids play basketball, most of the time spent running, chasing after the ball. 
Yes. And, and that's, that's not the same. <laughs> that is for me. If yeah. I play basketball, I'm spending way more time picking that thing up off the ground. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whereas, um, whereas if we had that same child spend five minutes on a treadmill yeah. or to be doing some swimming and not just playing around in the pool, which is great. That's the recreation side of it. Yeah. But to do some laps where they get the pattern, rhythmic, yeah. repetitive movement, that it's those pieces, a pattern, repetitive, rhythmic piece that can be very calming and helps the brain to organize. So mm. we're always trying to find kind of a balance between those, those two different things. Yeah. Um, so, so around this, uh, you know, in terms of uh, finding those things as being that detective, what does your child like? What do they respond to? I think about um, deep pressure, which we were talking about in terms of the um, move work part is kind of could be sort of the deep pressure. You can do stretching. Yeah. Um, that gets that proprioceptive response. So you might use bits of yoga. Um, all of this, I think, works way better if the caregiver is doing it along with your child. Mm -hmm. Because then now it's side by side. It's, it's relational, if possible. And, um, and it's not sort of sending the child off to go do his calming exercises, right? This is, no, we're doing this together. And yeah. you've got lots of caregivers who, who kind of try, we're trying to ask them to say, hey, I'm feeling stressed. Would you help me with this? What do you think I could do right now to bring down my stress? And the child said, well, I think you need to do a move yes. or three. I think you're right. Okay, well, what should we do for the work? What do you think would be good for me for the move part? And so the child's learning and contributing and doing it in parallel with you, which brings in the attachment piece as well. And self-esteem, right? They're contributing, not being told what to do. Yeah, exactly. Such a different position to be in for a kid. Yeah. Yeah. I want to uh, touch on one other thing just in terms of the bottom up. So again, I, earlier on, I talked about children where we knew there were issues during pregnancy. Yeah. We knew there were issues soon after after the child was born. And we, especially if you see sensory kinds of challenges, right? So mm -hmm. the child um, has difficulty with, with uh, the tags on their clothing and the texture of foods and all those kinds of things yeah. that you know, would make you think, okay, they've got some sensory stuff going on. Um, I really like the idea of uh, that at night, we have this a bit of a captive audience with the child. And what we've done over and over again is tried to introduce pattern, repetitive, rhythmic stimulation through the night. So I get, I'll give you an example of a little four-year-old boy who was adopted, and the parents said to us right off the bat, he never sleeps more than an hour and a half at a time, and then he's up, and he's up for hours. We are exhausted. He has to sleep in our room with us because the separation bothers him. But really, if we're lucky, if he gets 90 minutes and then he's up and he wakes us up, yeah. so exhausted. So what we did with him is we looked at his history and we saw, okay, all of these issues during pregnancy where mom was under a huge amount of stress mm -hmm. and fearful and, and using substances. So he wasn't getting that, yeah. that rhythm. That rhythm. And so what we do is we, we love this idea of the you know, stuffy or a, there's something called a heartbeat puppy. You can get these little puppies that have a, the sound of a heartbeat in that. So we got a heartbeat puppy for this little boy. And um, within a few days, the parents called us up and they said, he is sleeping through the night. <laughs> Dr. Getty's magic wand. This is like, <laughs> right? Like, woo, sign me like up. It. I'll pay thousands of dollars for that one to get my night's sleep. Oh. Yeah, actually, that, so we, uh, I, tell, I think I tell that story in my book. And I had a family from Australia contact me. And they said we had a similar kind of situation, just yeah. that we, the child woke up angry first thing in the morning, yep. every morning. Yep. And so we did that same thing. So we put in this, um, they started using something like that, doing a, a heartbeat 
is what the child's hearing, which they missed out on, right? Yeah, that's so all right. those a regulated those heartbeat. They mm-hmm. missed the regulated heartbeat, and so we're trying to provide that to them for six mm-hmm. hours a night, eight hours a night, and it's amazing how calmer they are. They wake up in the morning happier, and so then your first engagement with them in the morning is positive rather than being, you know, a fight. Um, yeah. Anyway, I had a family from Australia who said, "Oh, I read that story and I tried stuff like that, and and oh. it's transforming things for us." So that's pretty cool. I love that. And, you know, that's one of the things that I love most about the book that you wrote is how practical it is. We've, you know, I had the chance to be part of your book launch and I I remember reflecting on, um, you know, if if I could kind of describe the quality of, or the, the, the way in which you wrote this book, it feels like the plane hit the runway. It, It just, it's, there's so much good stuff in there. Um, but often we read good stuff and don't know how to apply it. And I thought you did such a great job of helping us see where the rubber meets the road and what we can actually do with that information. And today's no different. You've provided a lot of good examples of what that would sound like, look like, feel like to implement strategies that actually help us move our child's baseline on that, on that staircase. Um, We've got a couple minutes here before we have to wrap up, but I, I was hoping that we could talk a little bit about something that I commonly see in particular for the, I want to talk about this in particular for this conversation around trauma and experience in trauma, because there are lots of types of therapy that work directly with a child for specific mental health challenges. When it comes in particular to trauma more and more I am leaning toward working with parents and less directly with the child because what does one hour once or twice a week do for a child in the presence of someone who is not their primary attachment, right? And so I feel like the bang for the buck is working with the parents because whoever is in charge of caring for that child has access to them 24 seven. Um, And it's so much more important that that parent or caregiver feels the sense of support so that they know what they're doing directly with their child. Um, Can you talk about, does this feel true to you in your clinical practice? Does this make sense as as a framework that that's where we need to be implementing our resources as opposed to primarily working directly with the child? Oh, 100% agree with you on that, okay. Karen. Um, you know, if you think about, one of the things we, we sort of think about is how do we create these developmental opportunities for the child to grow yeah. and, and to develop? Because often they're sort of stuck at different places. How do we help them to move, to grow and move forward? And I think about um, all the therapeutic moments that mm-hmm. can happen mm-hmm. with the main, with your, with your parent, yeah. with your main caregiver. That's where those therapeutic moments are going to happen. And that's where the child's really going to start to grow and develop. And, and so, um, you know, you may need some coaching around that, but how yeah. do you get to this place where it might feel like a big struggle to a place where you feel like you're, you have these therapeutic moments happening, but, um, you know, that's the 24 uh, yes. seven over and over and over with these, with the people they're most connected and attached to. I know that some of you are struggling some of your audience are struggling with kids where it feels like you just can't quite get attached there. I understand that that's part of it, but but mm-hmm. overall, we want to see those therapeutic moments happening. So that's the child feeling listened to, 
That's the child having you express empathy and validation for the feelings. Yeah. That's the child feeling calm in your presence. All of that is going to be, I, I think, will far outweigh anything they could get from an individual therapist in an office. Right. Now, there's a there's a time and place for that, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but I think for most of uh, your audience, most of the people we work with, they want to send the child there first. And mm-hmm. to me, um, often the kids that that are referred to us. They're struggling developmentally far beyond, like you think about their chronological age and their developmental yep. age, yes. they're half their chronological age. So it's a 12-year-old, right. but underneath, they're really more like a five, six-year-old. How yeah. are we going to help that five or six-year-old to heal and to move and to, mm. to grow? It's through these moment after moment of therapeutic experiences. Totally. It's not the one hour a week with the therapist. Now, will that help at some point down the road? Mm-hmm. Down the road? Yes. Um, but we don't. I can't think of a case where we went looking for a therapist to start with. Our, yeah. our, um, what we've seen over and over, we've worked with about 350 children and teens across the province of BC. And what we've seen is that we see um, actually quite astounding growth and movement for kids over and over and over again without there being any kind of outside therapist. So just yeah. working at those adults that are close, the closest connected and how do we help you to make those, turn those into therapeutic moments? Well, I guess, yeah. And what I want parents to hear is that as therapists trying to support your child or the child in your care, we are not looking at you as though you have failed them in some way if you're the one coming to us for support, right? So I, th- I think that might be a barrier. People are assuming that we think the same way about this. this. That's not how we're thinking about it, right? That you haven't failed by saying, I need the one, I'm the one who needs to be in the helping spot here. I need some support from people. We're not viewing that as, well, of course you do because you're not doing a good enough job. That is not the frame, right? The frame is, it's because you are ideally positioned to actually be the most powerful healer in that child's life. And so we need you, <laughs> right? We need that. And so that's how we view it. But I, I love yeah. that. I love how you frame that. That was really and, helpful. And, and a really, uh, it's a really nice way to describe that too, that you are the most, the most important person in the child's life and the yeah. one who be that healing agent for your child. Yeah. And that, um, you know, if typical parenting strategies work for these atypical kids, huh, right? we'd all be yeah. doing fine. That's but right. they don't. So the things yeah. you learned growing up, the things you've tried, if they're not working, it's just because these are challenging kids. Yeah. And so we would want to, to provide you with tools and understanding to so that you can become that best sort of therapeutic person in the child's life. And yeah, that's Excellent. where we're going to see them take off. So good. Thank you for today's time. Again, um, I appreciate you adding uh, to the original episode and and I'm now able to actually add a link to where people can purchase the book because everything we've talked about today um, is embedded in that. And so if if this resonated with listeners, I would encourage them to go purchase a copy of the book. Um, I, I really believe it's not going to disappoint. So please go and check that out. Um, and it will link it to the show notes. And we've also talked about the stress staircase throughout today's episode and the image that comes with that. If you have subscribed to my living room learning page or to the podcast page, uh, you will receive a copy of that, which is printable. So um, I'm going to make sure that I attach that. Thank you, Dr. Geddes, for providing that for us. Um, and I hope you have a great week. Thank you for joining me. 
so much. Thanks for spending time with me today. Remember to check out the show notes for related resources. You can follow me on Facebook and Instagram, where you can also subscribe to my online learning page at my.thrive-life forward slash LRL series, where you'll get updates, extra tools for your toolkit. And if there's a topic that you want me to cover in this podcast, please shoot me a message. I would love to hear from you. Shoulder to shoulder with you, knee deep in this mud. I will see you back here next time.